Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Although we always hope that New Books and Philosophy will be an interesting, educational, and fun part of your regular life in this time of coronavirus pandemic and social distancing, we also hope that our podcasts will provide welcome relief from stress or boredom. My interview today is with Peter Carruthers, Distinguished University Professor of Philosophy at the University of Maryland at College Park. His new book, Human and Animal Minds, The Consciousness Questions Laid to Rest, is just out from Oxford University Press. Do non-human animals have phenomenally conscious mental states? For example, do they have the types of conscious experiences we have when, in our case, we experience the smell of cinnamon or the redness of a ripe tomato? In his new book, Carruthers argues that there is no fact of the matter as to whether they do or not. On his view, non-human animals have those types of consciousness identified as being awake or being aware. Moreover, he agrees that the mental lives of humans and non-humans share quite a lot based on recent empirical research, and he adopts a reductive theory of phenomenal consciousness that identifies it with globally broadcast non-conceptual content. What is indeterminate is whether non-humans have the all-or-nothing, what-it's-like quality that our first personal concept of phenomenal consciousness appears to pick out. Nevertheless, he argues that this indeterminacy really doesn't matter much. In particular, it does not follow that we should not be concerned about animal welfare. There's a lot to talk about. It's a very interesting book. So let's turn to the interview. Hello, Peter Carruthers. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hi, nice to talk to you. I'm very excited to talk about your book, Human and Animal Minds, The Consciousness Questions Laid to Rest. Before we get to the, you know, the actual test of this book, maybe you could give us a little bit of uh, background about yourself and your interests. I mean, this is not your, you've written a number of books and, and certainly a large number of articles on the topic of animal minds and consciousness, things like that. So maybe you can tell us a bit about your interests in these in these areas and then how this particular book came about. Sure. So I've been working on and off on philosophy of psychology for now, oh, I don't know, 30 years, I guess. Um, and I did a book on consciousness 20 years ago now. It was called Phenomenal Consciousness. Um, and in that book, I defended a a version of the higher order thought theory. It, it, I called it um, dual content theory. And then I more or less stopped thinking about the topic. I kind of lost interest. I had other things to do. Um, I continued working on things to do with 
um, modularity and mental architecture and animal minds and then on self-knowledge and um, then I did a thing on conscious thought and as that time was passing I was getting increasingly uneasy about the theory I'd defended um, partly that I just thought well there's not it, it required me to make some assumptions that I couldn't really argue for. I mean, I thought it was giving the best explanation, but um, I was uneasy. Um, and it was only a few years ago that it occurred to me that, I mean, I went back to look at the arguments I'd offered for preferring dual content theory over um, Michael Tye's sort of um, global access theory. And I thought, hmm, the arguments aren't that good. And one in particular brought me up short. It was that I had argued that Ty's view, the first order global workspace view, couldn't really explain why anything lit up when you moved from unconscious to conscious. And I realized that although I had been offering a, a fully reductive theory, um, there is no such thing as lighting up on my view. I mean, there's no special properties or, or anything like that that I'd been sucked into um, some of the assumptions that undergird people's belief in, in qualia and special properties of phenomenally conscious experience. Um, and then once I dropped that, I thought, okay, so um, the best theory is likely to be first-order theory. And I then started to wonder what implications that had for animals and taught a seminar on the topic and we discussed it. And um, I ended up writing this book because I thought, Michael Ty had just brought out a book on animals and I thought he'd got it all badly wrong. <laughs> um, and I thought I could do better. Okay. Well, um, one of the questions, um, which I want to get to later is, is you, you do, you know, uh, defend a global workspace theory, um, uh, instead of a higher or higher order thought theory. Um, uh, but first of all, let's, um, we should probably establish, you know, when you're talking about phenomenal consciousness, you know, what exactly are you you talking about? Um, and there's a number of different properties there um, that are that play an important role in your in the overall argument because, um, as as you as we'll get to, um, you know, you argue that there's no no fact of the matter as to whether uh, non-human animals are uh, have phenomenal consciousness. So, so, you know, just to kind of get us started, what, what do you mean by phenomenal consciousness, um, uh, as opposed to say creature consciousness or other, other, other consciousness type phenomena, right? Um, and then, and then you also have, you know, you argue that it's, it's, it's all or nothing, you know, it, it does not come in degrees. Um, and it's also a, a feature of, of mental states. So could you could you say a bit about about phenomenal consciousness? Yeah, so phenomenal consciousness is the is the form of consciousness that um, it wasn't introduced by Thomas Nagel, but um, he was the one who first really popularized it. It's the the what it's likeness of experience. Um, so what it's like to see red, to hear a trombone, to smell cinnamon, and. I think everyone who's discussed the issue has always thought of it as a first-person notion, that locutions like 
you know, what it's like or the feel of experience or the qualitative properties of experience are all really to draw one's attention introspectively to one's own experiential states. So when I say, you know, an experience of bright red is like the experience of a trumpet, that's really just an invitation for you to introspect on the experiences that you have of those two to verify it from your own case. Um, Other uses of the term conscious that also occur in, in English quite frequently, there's the conscious versus asleep or conscious versus unconscious. Um, there can be consciousness of a thing or a property in the world. And most of those are, I think, fully third-person notions of, of consciousness. The, there's, there's nothing specially first-personal or introspective about them, right, that we can um, easily judge whether an animal is awake or asleep. You can judge whether a cat is conscious of the mouse scuttling towards its hole, meaning it just sees it. Um, whereas the phenomenal consciousness is this first-person one that applies specifically to, to experiences, debated whether it also applies to thoughts. There's a debate about that that I've joined in on. Um, and it's supposed to be phenomenal consciousness that gives rise to hard problems. I mean, so since, well, actually since Nagel's work, he, he, he thought that the contrast between first personal and third personal perspectives on our experience in the world was kind of created a kind of disconnect that was really problematic and deeply problematic. Um, and then, of course, Chalmers in his book argued that um, the, the problem of phenomenal consciousness should lead us to think that um, there are special non-physical properties in the world, qualia properties that can't be explained in physical terms. Um, and in part, we're supposed to get to that view by thinking about um, the possibility of zombies, that, that you can think to yourself, well, there could be a creature that's exactly like me in all physical, behavioral, representational respects, right? Its psychology is just like mine except that it doesn't have states like these. And here you pay attention to your own phenomenally conscious experience and you think, so it hasn't got this, but nevertheless, it sees the world and it acts on the world and it it does all the things that I do. And it even says, I'm puzzled by phenomenal consciousness, Um, but it's all dark on the inside in some sense. It doesn't lack these introspectable properties that I've got. Um, So that's the target of of explanation here. Part of the target is to see... um, First of all, what the best physical correlates of phenomenal consciousness are. So, so, you know, as you look at the way the brain works and the way the mind works, what's the best account we've got of um, the properties that line up with phenomenally conscious experience? And then you can ask the further question of, well, so what is it? Is it something non-physical or is it physical? And if it's physical... Um, you have to respond to the hard problem thought experiment somehow to, to, to show how they can be explained away, despite the fact that what you're dealing with is a, is a physical property that, that a zombie would not lack but have. Um, so that's the basic problem. Okay, so, um, uh, so just uh, again, just, just, just to clarify, so a, a dog, when it, it, it sees a cat or something, um, 
it sees the cat, it, per, it perceives the cat, but it doesn't have any sort of what it's likeness as oh, far as I mean, the cat. That, that at the outset of discussion is an open question. Okay. Right? Um, I mean, right. what, what you don't have is the same kind of, um, exactly the same kind of reasons you'd have for believing it's got those properties that you have for another human. Um, but, you know, at a first pass, you might think, well, you can have more or less confidence in the phenomenal consciousness experience of animals as the degree of overall similarity between their minds and ours gets greater or less. Um, so you might think it's more plausible to think that a dog has phenomenally conscious experience than, that, say, a frog does or a bee. Um, but, you know, and, and at the start of the book, I treat that as an open question. It's going to depend on what the best theory of consciousness is and what the best account of phenomenal consciousness is. So I end up saying, yeah, the dog sees what's there and is so, in this sense, creature consciousness, creature conscious of what's there. But there's no fact to the matter about whether it's, it's perceptual state when it is in that state is like this state that I have when I see the cat. Okay, so maybe we should start on our journey to that that conclusion. Um, <laughs> so one of the one of the things that you um, establish, I mean, you've already said that um, you know it's a first personal notion, um, and it's uh, it's we have access to our states of phenomenal, our phenomenally conscious states, or to the experiences of, of what it's like. Uh, through introspection, right? Introspective evidence. Um, could you say a bit more about that? I mean, one of the things that um, you know turned that, that turned out to be very uh, an important thing, you know, the fact that we have access first personally to our own phenomenal consciousness through introspection. Obviously, we can't introspect to anybody else, um, whether that's another human being or another uh, a, a non-human animal. Um, can, can you explain a bit about the difference between um, why we're able to get from this first personal introspective beginning about knowing our own or having, being acquainted with our own mental states or, yeah, our own mental states. Um, and then uh, the fact that on your view, um, we, we can, um, uh, there is a fact of the matter uh, about the, the, um, the what it's like for humans, but there isn't a fact of the matter for the non-human. So to get to the, the, the fact of the matter issue is a bit of a jump at the outset, because, I mean, that depends rather heavily on the on the particular theory I offer. Okay. Um, but, but, okay, I mean, let me jump straight into it. Um, so I think the, 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 the most straightforward answer is to, if one takes for granted that, that phenomenal consciousness is this first-person notion, and in particular it's whatever gets picked out by the phenomenal concepts one can employ um, when thinking about one's own experiences, when one thinks about them, divorced from their physical and functional physical and representational properties 
Um, so these are the concepts that one would employ when I think a zombie might have everything, everything I've got, but it wouldn't have this, right? So obviously I'm abstracting away from the fact that this is a perceptual state because I've already granted that the zombie has a perceptual state and I'm abstracting away from the fact that it represents whatever a red rose because I've already granted the zombie sees a red rose. Um, so it's these sort of purely indexical acquaintance-based concepts that fix the domain of phenomenal consciousness. And then you can ask, all right, so this isn't a public concept. These are, in a sense, private that we kind of introduce on the fly to think about our own phenomenally conscious states. Um, so what fixes the truth conditions if I raise the question whether another creature has a state like this? Right. What, what, what makes it true or false that another creature would have this when I pay attention to my phenomenally conscious state? Well, if there were qualia, if there were some distinctive properties picked out by these first-person um, indexicals, then I think it would be clear what the truth conditions are, right? That, that um, it'll be true that another creature has this if another creature has got that qualia property, whatever that is. It might be really hard to know whether it's true. And indeed, there are deep problems of, of knowledge for anyone who believes in qualia, which is why you get everything in the, in the, in the field here from, um, from panpsychism, where people think that every tiny little particle of matter um, have consciousness properties all the way up to people who think that it's restricted to human beings. And there seems no obvious way of resolving it. Um, but if you deny that and you think, no, what, what you're actually picking out with these indexicals is just globally broadcast non-conceptual content, but not thought about as such, thought about just in the indexical way that you can do when you've got this state, <clears throat> then the truth condition has got to be a function of one's dispositions to use the concept. So the analogy I use um, which is a first-order concept. It's a concept about the external world, but I think it, it, it serves to make the idea intuitive. Um, is another example of, a, of a, a concept that's in a sense private, that doesn't have public norms governing its use. I imagine, you know, I suppose you've been offered a job in another city and you've accepted, and now you're on a visit looking around potential neighbourhoods to live, and you walk into a neighbourhood and you exclaim, so this is the sort of neighborhood we should live in. Now, I can imagine a case where there's no one property that you intend to pick out, right? So it's not, it's not picket fences or something that you, you particularly admire. Um, but nor could you articulate all the various properties of the neighborhood that are giving rise to this disposition to say, yeah, this feels right, right? This is the sort of neighborhood I want. So... Take that concept now and ask, suppose I say of some other neighbourhood in the city or ask of some other neighbourhood in the city, is that neighbourhood of this sort or not? Well, plainly, this sort of neighbourhood is not intended to pick out a natural kind. There's no public norms governing its use. I think the only way to answer that question is to, or what fixes the truth condition for the question is that if the dispositions that currently undermine underlie my use of the concept, this neighborhood or this type of neighborhood, were instantiated 
in that other neighborhood, right? If I were transported immediately there and the circumstances were otherwise the same, then I would judge it to be a neighborhood of that sort, right? That that, that neighborhood over there would evoke um, the same dispositions, that the activation of the same dispositions that currently are underlying my current judgment. And I think that's the right model for thinking about how one would project um, first personal phenomenal concepts into the minds of other people. In effect, you ask, if the dispositions underlying my use of this experience were instantiated in the mind of that other being, would they issue in the judgment that that state is of this sort? And that makes sense in connection with other adult humans because all the background abilities are there that are necessary for thinking indexical thoughts about one's own experiences, right? You've got capacities for higher order thoughts, you've got capacities for language, you've got capacities for reflective thinking. But if you project it into the mind of a very different sort of creature, a monkey, say, it has none of those capacities. Um, Well, let's suppose it has none of those capacities. we, We could debate at the margins or... If you worry about monkeys, we could go to we could move to salmon or something. Um, so pick a creature that has none of those capacities. Then, when you ask the question, if the dispositions underlying my use of the concept "this" were instantiated in that mind, would it issue in a judgment of such and such a sort? You're imagining the mind to be quite other than it is. So, in effect, it's a presupposition of. Um, statements about phenomenal consciousness in other minds, that they share the same um, architecture or share the same capacities for thinking and um, reflectively applying concepts. And if that's false, then the attribution of consciousness there is neither true nor false, right? There's a false presupposition underlying the, 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 the very question. The presupposition is that it's capable of those, those kinds of capacities. If that's false, then the counterfactual is just unevaluable. There's no evaluating. Would the mind of the monkey, as it actually is, if it contained dispositions to think like I've got, issue in a positive judgment? Because if it had dispositions like I've got, it would be a different kind of mind. So that's the the key argument for the the, um, no fact of the matter for other minds. Um, I argue that it's sort of a mistake to think that there's anything substantive turning on this because if you're a reductionist or have a reductive explanation view of phenomenal consciousness like I do, there is no special property here. I mean, there are special concepts. There's a special first-person way of thinking about our own experience, and that's what gives rise to the, the problem of consciousness and the hard problem and so on. But what you're thinking about is just globally broadcast non-conceptual content. Um, And that exists to one degree or another in in many different creatures. Um, And you can understand the minds of the creatures without having to ask this first-person question at all. Um, So there's, you know, if if you say, well, we've got phenomenal consciousness and there's no fact of the matter about animals, is that a big difference? No, it's no difference, (laughs) or rather... The only difference that there is is that we've got capacities for thought that they haven't got. Um, there's no 
there's no further deep fact. There's no light that got turned on when you transition from monkeys through chimpanzees and other great apes to hominins. Um, there's just increasingly complex cognition that appears. Um, well, let me go go to the point about, you know, um, I think you said projecting my, my disposition underlying my use of, you know, this when I'm talking about you know, right, this experience right. of having. Um, just wondering what, 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 um, how, how do I know which aspects of my dispositions um, are the right ones that, or the ones that matter or something um, for, for this purpose of projecting to something else, right? So, so what I'm thinking here is something like, um, you know, it could be that, you know, I, I, I introspect and, and maybe I've got all these dispositions um, and I am able, you know, on, 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 on your account, I'm able to um, sort of project those dispositions to, to another human um, but not to um, a monkey. Um, and so the question is, I mean, if uh, which of my dispositions really matter? Could be that, um, uh, you know, I take the bunch of them, and that, of course, is, is sufficient for me being able to project to other humans. Um, but as, but it could just be the case that, you know, in fact, um, only a few of those uh, might be uh, necessary, let's put it that way, for, um, for being able to project. And even though I don't recognize that fact, I mean, I might just sort of say, you know, anything that, you know, has these dispositions and I kind of gesture in a particular direction and will have it. Um, that's fine, but it, it doesn't seem to follow that all, that all the things that I'm gesturing at are necessary. Um, and so it could be that, so I was just gonna say, it could be that um, there, are, there are dispositions that, um, that I might share with, you know, a non-human, a monkey. Uh, um, and those, those are the ones that matter as far as projecting well, look, if, uh, if, but what you're gesturing at, on my view, what you gesture at is is not the just dispositions. You gesture at the phenomenally conscious state. The dispositions are dispositions that underlie one's use of the concept that uh, referring to that state. So, for example, um, one aspect of those dispositions that, that there's just no getting away from is that they require the capacity for higher order thought. Because this is a, the dispositioning, the concept in question is a question, is a concept about an experiential state, not quite as such, because you're kind of abstracting away from that, but you're thinking about your own experience. Um, let, let, me, let me recast your, your question in a slightly different way, though, which is that, I mean, I think there is an interesting question here that I don't bother to pursue particularly because in the end I think the phenomenal consciousness question doesn't matter. Um, but you could ask the question, all right, so w what exactly is required for employing a phenomenal concept? 
right? What are, what are the background capacities that have to be there? Pretty obviously a capacity for higher order thought, because these are concepts that are about um, mental states, um, is a capacity for reflective thinking required. I mean, so I, I think that some monkeys probably have the capacity for higher order thought, but maybe they don't have the capacity to sort of think reflectively in a controlled way as we do, who knows? Um, maybe language is required. A, a concepts like this experience that one engages require um, linguistic formulation. Could a, could a, um, a non-language using human think the thoughts that give rise to the hard problem or form the concepts that give rise to the hard problem. I think that there there are kind of hard questions there. Um, I don't find them terribly interesting just because I think once you see that um, there's nothing substantive that is going to turn on this, that if it turns out, for example, that all you need is a capacity for higher order thought, then sure, that'll mean that there's a fact of the matter about, let's say, whether chimpanzees have states like this, um, but not whether salmon do. Um, but there's no special extra property that 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 means that the chimpanzees have. All the facts are just as they were. It just means the chimpanzee has a conceptual capacity that the salmon lacks. Um, I mean, all the other facts about, about the minds of the animals can be just as they are, what everyone says about this analysis. Um, so this is among the, the, the questions that I think you, know, you could raise um, from within the perspective I defend. I just think, what's the point? I mean, once you see there's, there's no special property involved, um, we should just get on with doing regular comparative psychology and trying to understand the minds of chimpanzees and monkeys and forget about the question whether they're phenomenally conscious because nothing turns on that. Um, hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because, you know, it, 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 it sounded like whether there, whether there was a fact of the matter as to whether there is a fact of the matter didn't matter. (laughs) Uh, um, because I mean, that's, actually, that, that's actually a nice way of putting it that that oh. that, that, <laughs> that, that, there, that there are going to be clear cases where there is no fact of the matter right I, on my sort of view a salmon for example um, plainly has none of the conceptual capacities that would be required for um, for tokening a, a, a phenomenal concept um, and then there are going to be cases where it's clearly the case they have those capacities, adult human beings. And then there's going to be creatures, including um, younger or older human beings, um, where we're unsure, where it's unclear whether they have those capacities or not, or exactly quite. Um, um, so those would be cases where, um, I mean, perhaps this is, this, is, this, is, this is more a matter of vagueness than of... of um, failure of presupposition or, or outright neither true nor falseness. Um, but again, I think there's, there's no interesting question to be settled. Um, you want to understand what the mind of the baby is capable of. And it turns out quite a lot more than you might think. But, um, but asking the question, but does it have a state like this? 
carries no extra, um, it doesn't introduce any extra property, whether the answer is yes or no, other than it tells you something about the concepts that baby can employ. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, well, maybe let, let's pursue this this particular angle. I mean, you said you know it, it, it fundamentally doesn't really doesn't really matter. I mean, nothing nothing important turns on it. Um, uh, which I mean, which is an interesting thing to say, regardless. Just because um, I mean, as you mentioned, I mean uh, the. Nagel, you know, the, what it's like and, um, you know, the problem that's supposed to raise for physicalism. Uh, and of course, Chalmers, as you mentioned, uh, the hard problem. I mean, I mean, we all talk about the hard problem, or at least some of us do. Um, and it's supposed to matter, right? Um, not, not, oh, I, don't yeah, mean, I, absolutely. I don't mean, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, just like, Oh my gosh! If something is or is not phenomenally conscious, um, and, and and I should say, I mean, it's it's there is a related issue. You might want to distinguish between saying, well, uh, you know, for example, should we be dropping live lobsters into hot boiling water, right? And people think that's you know a terrible thing if they if they experience pain, um, and in that sense, people will say, of course, it matters. Right. Um, so, so I think maybe it would be helpful if, if you could clarify what what when you say you know nothing really turns on it. Um, maybe you could clarify what you mean there. Yeah. So look, you've introduced two things. So a lot turns on the correct overall account of phenomenal consciousness, and in particular, a lot turns on whether there's some special non-physical property of the world that is introduced with phenomenal consciousness, whether there are qualia or whether there aren't. Right? So I, I, it, it's not that I think the, um, the debate about phenomenal consciousness doesn't matter. I think it does. It's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a big metaphysical question. I think, though, that we now know enough to resolve that debate. I think we know enough to know at least to have reasonable beliefs about what the um, neural correlates of, of consciousness are. It's this global workspace stuff. And we have no enough to have reasonable beliefs about um, what phenomenal consciousness is, that it is globally broadcast non-conceptual content because we can solve the hard problem thought experiments. We can explain away why we attempted to think the things that we think about the non-physical nature of, of consciousness. And um, so all those are, are, I mean, that's what I tried to debate through the book. But once you come out the other side of that, once you come out the other side and think, oh, okay, so we've got these special concepts that we can use for thinking about our own um, um, globally broadcast non-conceptual contents. And it's those concepts that give rise to the problems. It's not the thing that we're thinking about, the contents that we're referring to when we employ those concepts, it's that the concepts themselves are disconnected from other physical and representational concepts, and so we can conceive of zombies and so on and so forth. Um, so there's no extra property, there's nothing special in the world that, that, that first enters the world when you first got phenomenal consciousness. Um, 
There is a separate question about whether phenomenal consciousness matters for ethics. And what I did in the final chapter of the book while um, wanting to um, abstract from any particular commitments on the on the um, moral issue, because I think that's for moral theory to do, not for philosophy of mind. I did present a, a sort of challenge to ethical theorists. Um, I mean, some of them plainly think that phenomenal consciousness does matter. Well, the challenge to them is, well, if I'm right, then there's no fact of the matter. Does that then mean um, that there's no fact of the matter whether those animals matter? Or can you reformulate your philosophical views, your ethical views in such a way that um, the phenomenal consciousness bit drops out as, as irrelevant as it should if there's nothing substantive about it? Um, in my own view is I think that, that yeah, all, all, all the views that make sense within the broadly um, moral philosophy field can be reformulated in third-person terms. You can reformulate them in terms of what creatures can perceive either in the world or about their own bodies, um, how they're evaluating what they perceive and responding to what they perceive. And then um, on some views you can be sympathetic on other views, you might have a moral duty to um, pursue the, the um, desire satisfaction of those animals, but the views don't require um, phenomenal consciousness in order to work. Okay, so um, so we, we would, given the right the right moral theory, we would still we could still be perfectly justified in arguing that. You know, we should we should not be, you know, throwing the live lobster in the pot or something like that. I mean, that depends on moral theory, obviously. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so so um, the 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 view I've got is, um, you can once once you know the psychology of the creature, you know its preferences, you know um, what it's what it's representing about the world and about itself, um, and it then depends upon moral theory what weight you give to those preferences given the background capacities of the creature in question. Okay. Um, well, let me go back to something you just, you said, I, and I just want to make sure I've got this right. So, um, so you defend a reductive account, right? So this is, you know, there are no qualia, no special properties. We don't need to go that way. Uh, it's, as you as you've said, it's, it's globally broadcast non-conceptual content, so it's a global workspace type theory. Um, uh, and um, and then we have these phenomenal concepts, and you said um, that the concept is in some sense disconnected from what it is. is did I get that correctly? Well, that 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 it's an indexical concept that is uh, that in a sense floats free of the um, surrounding third personal mental state concepts. So when I I think about you know pay attention to a particular experience of of, of red, and I think well the way this is like could have been reliably caused by green grass, right? So this is the the, the you know the classic. Um, qualia inversion thought experiments, right? So when I token the, the concept this to refer to the state as I'm experiencing it, I can then 
hold this disconnected from the third personal concepts that I would normally use to characterize it, like perception of red or seeing red. Okay. Um, and it's in that sense that it's, it's, it's disconnected. Okay, so, so once we have this reductive account of what, ex what phenomenal experience is, what, um, the what it's like, um, then in, in what sense do, 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 does our phenomenal, our concept uh, matter in a way? Does that question make sense? I mean, we, you know, we, we've, we've derived these concepts from, you know, introspection. It's, we think it's all or nothing. We've got all these, you know, maybe associations with the, the way we conceive of it. Um, but none of that, you know, but, but then we have a theory. And we've got a theory, a reductive theory, which says this is what phenomenal experience is. And, and you know, to hell with our concept of it <laughs> um i mean there's a sense in which the, the 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 concepts in question don't matter either i i i think that um it's not entirely true that they're a kind of philosophical invention but i, I it, it requires something close to philosophical thinking to formulate these concepts um i mean my own experience in teaching consciousness is that you sometimes have to work pretty hard to get students to see the problem, the hard problem. I mean, to see that there's any issue here at all. And in doing so, what one often has to do is, is say, well, look, pay attention to, to your experience of this bright red now and think to yourself, couldn't I be having this? And yet what's in front of me is green grass or something like that. And in effect, you're inviting them to formulate a phenomenal concept on the fly. I don't think these concepts play a big role in anything in regular life. They've, they've come to play a really important role in cognitive science, unfortunately, because so many people have got hung up on the issue. Um, but they themselves are not particularly important any more than the, 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 the supposedly unique status, nature of what it is that they pick out is. Yeah, so, so I guess that, I find that a little bit confusing um, because one of one of, again one of the arguments you know the first argument that you give about the no fact of the matter for non-human uh, experience or phenomenal consciousness is um, is that there's nothing in our concept right this first personal thing that fixes the extension for them but if we have a reductive theory, global workspace, then uh, as long as, you know, that theory, uh, you know, maybe it, it identifies certain neural correlates, maybe it, you know, there's certain behavioral, you know, indexes, maybe, you know, I mean, whatever, whatever evidence there is, right, for, for that theory. Um, uh, would apply, you know, to uh, other creatures. I mean, at least certainly in principle, um, and probably empirically. Um, and that, and again, that's that's that's, you know, either the the theory, the global workspace theory, has them in an extent in its extension, so to speak, 
or not, and whether our concept extends to them seems to be just a non-issue. Oh, I mean, well, why is that but, wrong? But, so back to the, the, the thought that the, the very domain that we're discussing, phenomenal consciousness, is a first-person domain. So the concepts that, that, that fix the domain, that fix the, fix the, the problematic here, first-person concepts, the concepts that one can employ to think about one's own experiences, the what it's likeness, the, the feel, and so forth. Um, one can, of course, um, switch to a third-person conception of phenomenal consciousness. I mean, in, in um, work I did with Benedict Vier, we suggested that the best way to operationalize it in third-person terms is just it's whatever property it is that gives rise to hard problem thought experiments. Right? Whatever that property is, that's what we're talking about. And expressed in those third-person terms, then yes, there's there's um, once we've got global workspace theory, you can say now as we as we um, look across creatures, creatures have that property, the global workspace, to a greater or lesser degree. In fact, it's a sort of complex cross-cutting, multi-dimensional similarity space, but to some degree, many creatures have aspects of the global workspace which explains the hard problem in, in humans. And again, there's nothing puzzling or problematic about that, and again, nothing turns on it, I think. It's only when you switch to the, the first personal concepts that the, the, the whole um, the problem of consciousness is supposed to arise Okay, um, so let me. Uh, uh, you you do you have a there's a you know one of the chapters that we that we haven't really talked about um, is uh, is where you discuss you summarize a great deal of of recent research in a in a in a wonderful way um, of about uh, animal minds. Um, you know the various um, uh, various capacities. You know, working memory and, and meta representation and, and various forms of communication and so forth. Um, and I mean, I that that chapter alone is you know since there's so much of this uh, of this research going on, um, you know, it, it it's it's a great chapter to kind of brings together a lot of what's going on, what's been going on for the past, you know, recent decades, at least. Um, and, um, and so just in, in that sense, you, you, you summarize that, you know, a, a, you know, a reasonably, uh, you know, comprehensive portion of the work, or at least one that's representative, maybe is a better word. Um, and uh, and you argue against what's sometimes called a discontinuity or strong discontinuity uh, view of the type that I think um, uh, I think Povinelli and some of his colleagues have argued for, right? Um, and um, so I was wondering, maybe you could tell us, maybe you could say a bit about about that chapter. You know, the very why you why you argue against a, a strong discontinuity view between um, human and animal minds. Right. 
So, so I mean, first off, um, I wanted that chapter to be there to make it crystal clear that I take animal minds seriously, right? That, that, that when I argue later on in the book that there's no fact to the matter about phenomenal consciousness, this is not some sort of um, neo-Cartesian view about human exceptionalism or anything of that kind. Um, so I, I probably have more extreme views about the extent of mentality than most people, and indeed many comparative psychologists. So I think you know, there are very simple minds that go all the way down to bees. Um, but when... Um, so the question really was about, so we've got a whole range of different capacities across creatures. What then marks the difference between, say, even the most sophisticated creatures, chimpanzees and maybe corvids, since some of the birds are really pretty smart, um, and human beings? What, how come you know we've gone to the moon and they're still cracking nuts? Um, I, I think a number of... The answer to that is complicated, and um, for for readers who are who are um, interested, I think the book "The Secret of Our Success" um, is a is a um, a wonderful one. Um, it, it's going to be a story that goes something like this: that that we have capacities that um, perhaps enhance those that are present in nascent form or to some degree in other creatures, so capacities for thought about other creatures' mental states. Um, we have pro-social capacities that, again, enhance or further um, push along the scale and capacities that are present in, in other primates. Um, we have capacities for language. It's still an open question how much of that is unique to humans, but I think it's likely there's at least some um, aspects of the so-called language faculty that are, that are innately channeled and unique to humans. Um, but all of that is mostly taking properties that other animal minds have and just sort of pushing them out a bit. I mean, another example might be curiosity, which I think is a very widely show, shared motivation, but probably got ramped up um, in the human lineage so that we're sort of voracious learners in a way that other creatures aren't so much. Um, and then from that point, what takes us to science is a capacity for cultural learning. I mean, when you combine together capacities for prosociality with um, capacity to read the minds of others and capacities to um, be like others, to imitate others, those those things that all humans have as kind of innate instincts. Um, what you get is the capacity to, when a discovery is made within a culture, it gets passed on reliably, and you can get a gradual ratcheting up of overall capacities there as, as inventions and discoveries and things that just arrive by happenstance and do well and get passed on through a process of sort of cultural evolution. Um, and all of that's equally true of hunter-gatherers as us, but you know, once you start to have large farming communities and you can have specialization, in effect you get um, you get thinking tricks or what, what 
um, Keith Stanovitz calls mindware that become amongst the discoveries that get passed down, right? So you get the invention of, of um, mathematical systems and you get the inventions of logics and of, of um, in the end, scientific methods. Uh, and so you get a continual ratcheting now of, of mental capacities that aren't innate capacities they are required from the culture around you. And that's why formal schooling is so important for us now. Um, and extreme forms of specialization. So you can see a kind of gradual shift from, um, yes, hunter-gatherers are quite different in many respects from chimpanzees and their cultural beings. They accumulate um, inventions and discoveries, and so you get more and more sophisticated um, hunting technologies um, in a particular region. Um, but then once you get settled communities in farming, you get much more specialization and things really start to ratchet so that you can get this um, um, ratcheting up the capacities of the species as a whole effect. So that's basically the story I think is the right one. I mean, I don't develop that in any particular detail in the book. But, um, right. Um, but it no, it, I mean, I think, uh, you know, it did make sense given the the no fact of the claim is about phenomenal consciousness that, um, you know, in a lot of ways you, you think not, it, it's, it's very much not a, a Cartesian type of, uh, you know, nothing. It's, you know, quite, quite the contrary. I mean, there's, there's, um, and non-human animals have, have, has, have a lot of mentality. Right? Um, uh, let me let me just. Um, I mean, is there some aspect of the book that you know we haven't talked about? You know, you mentioned the, you know, our theory of mind module and, and projecting mental states, and, and so there's a number of issues that we we haven't touched on in the book. And um, I just thought I'd give you an opportunity to. Is there is there some aspect that we haven't touched on that you would like to? So I suppose one that we haven't, which I mean, which which has been sort of bouncing around in the background of some of the discussion, is is the phenomenal concept strategy, um, which uh -huh. is by no means unique to me. It's 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 um, it goes way back to Brian Law and perhaps earlier, um, yeah. but it's the the way of diffusing the so-called hard problem of consciousness by saying, well, actually, it's really just a function of the concepts that get used in those thought experiments. It's not a function of the any special property that's being picked out by those concepts. And in order to, to develop that strategy, you have to say something about what phenomenal concepts are. And that's where I think this um, indexical acquaintance-based view is the right one. And um, where the notion of acquaintance involved, by the way, is, is, is nothing... Um, it's not metaphysically problematic. It's just um, when you've got globally broadcast contents, um, they're available to whatever um, executive systems enable the construction of structured thoughts. And those thoughts can either be about um, the content represented by um, the globally broadcast content, so you can think about the color of the object, or they can be thoughts about that state itself, and you can think about this that I'm undergoing right now and think about the experience. Um, 
And once you've got those concepts in place, then all the thought experiments that philosophers get so hung up on open up, right? Because you can you can then conceive of zombies and, and so on. Um, now, it doesn't follow from, from this story so far that, that there are no qualia, right? Um, but I think the simplest explanation is that there are no qualia. Um, and one way of getting at that is to, is to um, notice that when you characterize the, the characterization of phenomenal concepts that I've just given is a third personal one, right? That represented from the outside, you can say, well, a phenomenal concept is an indexical concept that you can token in the presence of um, a globally broadcast state once that concept is disconnected from other third personal concepts. Um, and using that characterization, you can then see that a zombie would obviously become um, puzzled by the hard problem of consciousness. And it would be able to conceive of a zombie version of itself, right? Because zombies have all the same third-personal capacities and representational capacities that I have. That's, that's part of the story. So, of course, they too can form indexical concepts that refer to their globally broadcast concepts, contents. And if they're indexical concepts, they can be disconnected from their, their the other third personal concepts they've got. And so a zombie will think, huh, there could be a being that's like, like me in all respects, except it hasn't got this, where the this is one of its. And then once you see that zombies would conceive of zombies, you can kind of bring it back home, right? I mean, that, that I'm as much of a zombie as the zombie is. Right? I'm just employing the same kind of concept and, and conceiving of a creature that lacks this, but there's no special properties involved in, in either case, right? It's both of us, me and the zombie, are both just thinking about the same state, the globally broadcast non-conceptual content. Um, right. Oh, okay, good. Um, <laughs> well, that was no, that was that was clarifying. Um, well, I think we're we're running out of time, um, so I'd like to end with a question about what you're working on now. I mean, are you are you doing? further work in the same vein or have you turned to something else? I mean, you have a number of different interests. Um, so what's, what's on your agenda for, for now or for the, the near future? Well, for the very near future, I've got um, two or three papers out under review at the moment that will inevitably get kicked back to me and will need further working on. It's so rare to get something accepted outright. Um, so one's on, on, um, varieties of metacognition and, and playing around with an idea that um, Nick Scher introduced um, for what, what I call purely referential metacognition and he calls non-conceptual metacognition. The difference doesn't matter much. Um, but a kind of a way of referring to mental states that wouldn't refer to them as mental. Um, so I got a paper on that looking at... at um, um, signals of mental effort as one potential example of that. And I've got another paper out under review on, on um, trying to reply to Tyler Burge's critique of the um, infant mind reading literature, well, infant and child mind reading literature, and arguing he's got that wrong. Um, but longer term, no, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm in the post book, sort of fumble around looking for new topics phase. Um, 
I don't have anything else planned, but then I very rarely ever do. Having finished one project, I, you know, I read a bunch of stuff and I teach a grad seminar and um, I happen upon things that, that, that grab me as I happened upon Michael Ty's book on um, crabs and whatever it was called, the, 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 the animal consciousness one um, in the lead up to this. Um, and I'll see what comes. Uh, I'm happy that you you took the time to talk with New Books and Philosophy, and uh, I I, uh, I enjoyed our conversation. I, I learned a lot. Yeah, thanks very much. It's been a lot of fun. Um. So so thank you again, and uh, good luck with the work that you are that is under review and and whatever comes. Right. Thank you very much, and you. You've been listening to my interview with Peter Carruthers, Distinguished University Professor of Philosophy at the University of Maryland at College Park. We've been talking about his new book, Human and Animal Minds, The Consciousness Questions Laid to Rest, which is just out from Oxford University Press. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. This is Carrie Figdor, New Books in Philosophy, and please stay safe. Bye.